The following program is brought to you free of charge by the sponsorship of Novos Ordo Watch. See for yourself that the Church of the Second Vatican Council is not in fact the Catholic Church of the Ages. Go to NovosOrdoWatch.org. That's NovosOrdoWatch.org. Welcome back to Francis Watch, sponsored by Novus Ordo Watch. You can find every episode of Francis Watch ever on FrancisWatch.org. And of course, you can find Novus Ordo Watch at NovusOrdoWatch.org. Your Excellency, thank you for joining us. Oh, nice to be here again. Unfortunately, it's just as Excellency Bishop Donald Sanborn with us. Father Chicada continues to convalesce in the hospital and... Your Excellency might give us an update about Father towards the end of today's episode. This is a somewhat Corona edition of Francis Watch, Your Excellency. Unfortunately, it's managed to invade every aspect of our lives. And before Corona Watch came in, however, we did have some episodes that happened earlier in the year, January and February. And one of them was this release of Carita Amazonia. We managed to cover some of the ideas that would be discussed because they were in the document, the preparatory document. But they ended up coming up in the final document as well. And obviously, we don't have time to go through all of this. And in fact, Novus Ordo Watch has a four-part audio series that goes quite, quite into depth in this. And we would recommend you take a look at that. But I thought that I would pick out a few, few of these gems, shall we say. Your Excellency, for, for your commentary, and again, to put us within the proper Catholic context for understanding what should be said here and what shouldn't be said. Paragraph 7 says, I dream of Christian communities capable of generous commitment, incarnate in the Amazon region, and giving the church new faces with Amazonian features. Well, that's so vague, uh, you know, <laughs> Uh, you could put a um, a Catholic uh, uh, interpretation on that, and that is that uh, you would hope that new parishes be founded in in the Amazonian region, and that uh, you know since the Catholic Church always has adapted to cultures to a certain extent, that you know that they you know uh, that there be a you know a certain adaptation to to the culture of those people. For example, the Italian Catholicism is of a much different flavor from English Catholicism. There has always been adaptation to culture uh, by the Catholic Church without ever touching the essence of the religion, and that that's key. Uh, Italian Catholicism is is just as Catholic as English is, but you're not going to see the same sort of um, you know, expressiveness uh, that you in in England that you would see in Italy, and the same is true for Spain uh, and and various other places. So, you know, you could put a, a Catholic sense on that, but then you could put a non-Catholic sense on it, which is more in keeping with the rules of interpretation because he's a non-Catholic, and that is that there be a a modernist transformation of Catholicism in these regions 
and an inculturation, which they have followed since Vatican II. Inculturation means going beyond merely a legitimate adaptation to culture and actually mixing Catholicism with local features, local cultures, uh, local gods, and, and various other things. This was done, actually, believe it or not, in the 17th century by the Jesuits in India and China. And they were censured very badly by the Vatican for that very thing. The Dominicans and the Franciscans complained to the Vatican that the Jesuits were bending over backwards to adapt Catholicism to the Eastern cultures and that they were crossing the lines and they were disciplined for that very thing. What do you think animated the Jesuits to, to move that, that way? Was that overzealous, overzealousness or, or modernism? No, it wasn't modernism at the time. It was, yes, an excessive zeal. Jesuits are, uh, I mean, their, their, their greatness and their fault lies practically in the same principle. Their greatness is education and missionary work and bringing the faith to the people and, you know, training people in the faith. They're very practical. And their fault is that they let their practicality invade their theology. That has always been their fault. Uh, St. Ignatius set them up as a catechetical organization and did not foresee any, any delving into the great theories of theology or even liturgy. Uh, and, and whenever they, they, their tendency was always to work backward from the pastoral into the theological. And in this case, into the liturgical and into the disciplinary aspects of the church was to work back. This would work. You see, the idea would be this, this would be better for the people if we adapted this and if we took some of their, their ways, et cetera. Uh, this, this is better. This would work. You know, there, there was, uh, the, the principle, it was what would work better, not what is in, what is in accordance with the high principles of theology and the church's discipline. So on the one hand, you know, they were great missionaries and they, they did a great deal for the church. On the other hand, they, they went overboard in those things and they lost their, their compass, uh, with regard to what could be done and what could not be done in that regard. You know, so that, that's uh, the same thing in their theology, all of their doctrine on grace. They wanted to convert Calvinists and in order to convert Calvinists, they, they, cooked up a, a theory of grace that emphasized human free will too much against the predestinarianism of the Calvinists. So the, the point of departure was, how are we going to you know, defeat the Calvinists on the battlefield, the theological battlefield? Oh, well, we'll, we'll use this. See, and it offended many theological principles, and that's known as Molinism. And uh, the, you know, the Dominicans were, you know, very, very adamant against that uh, because uh, it ultimately led to, logically, Molinism leads to the denial of the existence of God. And they didn't bring it to that. But if you do the logic of it, because it places passivity in God, and if God is passive, if he... If he learns something, if he if he doesn't know what you're going to do and he learns from you, 
That means he's passive. And if he's passive in anything at all, he's not God. So, I mean, that's a whole other subject to get into. But I'm just pointing out that enculturation. And Vatican II promoted the same enculturation that was condemned in the 17th century and far beyond. So in India and all these other places, it's it's all worked in, all of the gods and, you know, all the various things. Paragraph 19. At the same time, since we cannot deny that the wheat was mixed with the tars and that the missionary did missionaries did not always take the side of the oppressed, I express my shame and once more I humbly ask forgiveness not only for the offenses of the church herself, but for the crimes committed against the native peoples during the so-called conquest of America, as well as for the terrible crimes that followed throughout the history of the Amazon region. Well, this is the broken record that actually came from JP2, you know, St. JP2. Uh, he apologized to the Indians in Canada for the, the crimes of the, the St. Jesuit missionaries who had the, the audacity to bring civilization to people who were acting worse than animals, okay, to human beings who were acting worse than animals. And that they tried to civilize them instead of uh, recognizing the the richness uh, in, in quotation marks of their culture in quotation marks like cannibalism and devil worship. And the same was true of those primitive peoples of South America that there were devil worshippers. Uh, almost all of the peoples that the missionaries found were devil worshippers uh, in all over the world in one form or other. And uh, the, the missionaries burned the books of the Incas because it was full of devil worship. And, you know, recently they have discovered these graves of children in South America, these mass graves of children who were sacrificed by the Incas and various Indian tribes of that area. So the now there's this apology, you know, for lifting or trying to lift people out of the the depths of the effects of original sin in them, whereby they love cruelty and they they kill their own children in sacrifice to the gods, uh, that this was a terrible thing that we tried to do to them, you know, of trying to lift them from running around naked or practically naked. Uh, and, and, you know, with everything that goes with that, the morals of these people I mean, there were no morals. You know, it was just whatever you're inclined to. That was it. You know, trying to lift them up from that. Uh, and um, in California, for example, they didn't even know how to till the soil until the missionaries came. And they all walked around naked. And, uh, you know, we might say things haven't changed much since. But with Christianity comes civilization. That's why Europe was so civilized. The northern barbarians had to be civilized by the southern Catholics. When they went into Germany and all those northern places, those people were barbaric. But, but the, you know, the, the virtue of charity and the virtue of justice and all of the things that Christianity brings with it are civilizing. Purity and chastity are civilizing. And so he's apologizing for this importation of civilization and also for the justifiably uh, harsh suppression of the evil uh, religions uh, and the evil practices of these primitive peoples. 
he uses the phrase offenses of the church. Your Excellency, can we say such a thing ever? I mean, I, we could say the offenses of some members of the church, but is could we could we refer to the offenses of the church? No, they they he is referring to the very missionary spirit. In other words, the idea of bringing the gospel saying to people that this is the one true church outside of which there is no salvation and that it is necessary to belong to this in order to go to heaven and that you must abandon your false religion and that you must accept the Catholic faith. That is what he is railing against here. And, you know, we're, are we going to... Uh, absolve every single act that every single priest did or or say that everybody was was perfectly in accordance with all the rules no of course not because priests are human beings and you know we're all human beings and we all commit certain sins from time to time but he is not attacking that and that's really anecdotal in any case what he is attacking is the very notion of proselytism which he has attacked on many other occasions the very idea that we should say, as the early Christians said to the Roman Empire, your gods are false, and thereby uh, accepted martyrdom you know, in, in, in many, many, many cases because they they would not worship their gods, and you know the, this, they were considered atheists by the state and anti-Roman because of that. And they they were put to death in many cases, and at least persecuted in various ways. You ruin the the whole nature of the Catholic Church if you take that away from it. Your discussion of the idea of savagery ties into paragraph twenty nine. They should not be viewed as uncivilized savages. They are simply heirs to different cultures and other forms of civilization that in earlier times were quite developed. I seem to recall there are papal documents that use the word savage, Your Excellency. of course they're savages. I mean, that's just ridiculous to say that people running around naked or in their underpants and living in a forest uh, where they're cut off from, uh, you know, all sorts of uh, of the the, the most basic uh, civilizing influences, especially in morality and virtue. But also in other civilizing, reading and writing, everything that that the Catholic faith has produced in Europe and all the places that Europe uh, colonized, that uh, we are supposed to re- regard this, you know, these these underpants people uh, as <laughs> as you know, it's just a different culture from, say, the culture of medieval Paris, you know, that that the Saint Thomas Aquinas and, and you know the Notre Dame and. That that we are put these on on an equal setting, <laughs> you know. This is just absurd. It, it, you know, how do you even comment about such an idiotic thing, an asinine comment? <laughs> well, I, you, you reminded me, um, Bishop Jean Pierre Camus once characterized the whole world as a, a mere exile from Paris. <laughs> this is a, a book a book on on the life of Saint Francis de Sales. Well, I have a great admiration for Paris, so I, I would I would uh, you know be hard pressed <laughs> to disagree with them. <laughs> <laughs> but again, this is the idea of bringing this political correctness into an allegedly papal document that well we we Catholics we don't use the word savages anymore. No, these people just they are from a different culture, and in fact, in earlier times, were quite developed. Yes, yes, quite developed. Come on. 
quite 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 developed in debauchery, I do think. Yes, yeah. even the Incas who were let's say developed in um, in architecture and building, you might say, in Mayas and all those in the, from the point of view of virtues and customs and uh, they, they were all and and religious superstitions uh, and cruelty, they were savages. You know, the same was true of many ancient civilizations, even in like the Minoans. And, uh, uh, you know, where there was a a lot of uh, human sacrifice and all sorts of things going on, despite the fact that there were some uh, other aspects of civilization, you might say, art and architecture. Uh, The Egyptians, you know, worshipping the sun and worshipping bulls and all of these other crazy things they did. I mean, that is so sick and so stupid. You know, to worship a bull. Uh, you know, I don't care if you could. Yeah, uh, I don't. I don't know how to reconcile your. So they had indoor plumbing and advanced medicine, and then they would worship cats and and bulls and this sort of thing. Well, the same may be said for our own modern civilization. I mean, we have so many aspects of civilization. You know, as far as ease and comforts and whatnot, and you know, advance in science and mathematics and all that. But to a great extent, we're savages. To you know, and there's another side of us that is savage. And, and I mean, abortion. That, like I recently said in my article, that there is a supine nonchalance about abortion. And we're at 63 million babies killed since 1973. Eh, you know, who cares about that? That's not really important. Or that you know that the governor of Virginia would favor having a discussion with the parents of an aborted child that survived the abortion as the baby is sitting there, you know, are we going to kill this baby? That this can be said, I mean, that is savage. I mean, (laughs) there's no other word to put on it. You know, so we have a good deal of savagery, you might say. I mean, the the decline of morality, the, the, uh, uh, there, there, I mean, as far as morality and customs and also the stupidity of things like evolutionism, which makes the worshiping of bulls and the worshiping of the sun look good. You know, it's, you know, evolutionism is so stupid and just, you know, just incredibly dumb. Yet it is the religion of the modern world. You know, so I mean, there's a, a very savage aspect about our quote unquote civilization. Continuing to develop his theme about earth worship, we have in paragraph 56. On the other hand, if we enter into communion with the forest, our voices will easily blend with its own and become a prayer. As we rest in the shade of an ancient eucalyptus, our prayer for light joins in the song of the eternal foliage. This interior conversion will enable us to weep for the Amazon region and to join in its cry to the Lord. <sighs> what, what do you say about something as stupid as that? I mean, that we become one with the trees and all of this garbage. <laughs> I mean, you know, this, this is the ravings of a madman. You know, they, that, it's, it's pantheistic, which is typical of modernists. They're pantheists. You know, God is in the tree and, you know, God is, you know, it, it's, uh, just pure nonsense. I mean, I'm not going to, you know, get into union with some tree outside, you know, I mean, <laughs> dogs do that maybe, but I'm not going to, to do that. You know, they, they, it's, it's just a tree and it has a purpose. And if it serves my purpose to chop it down, I'm going to chop it down. And, you know, this idea, you know, preserving, why does poor Brazil have to 
bear the brunt of not being able to develop its country? What about all the trees that were chopped down in Italy and in France and in Germany in order to have those countries? But, you know, Brazil has to, you know, preserve all of this and not touch it. Uh, you know, there's obviously a reasonable preservation of some forest land. But to say that the entire, you know, Amazon region cannot be touched is ridiculous. Because, you know, we're supposed to subdue the earth, as God said to us. And that's what we have been doing. That's why we have the world we're living in. If these people, you know, if we do the logic of these people, we should go back to the horses and the ox carts and everything else of the Middle Ages and even pre-Middle Ages. We should just let the trees grow as they will and forget about modern medicine. Uh, we can die with the plagues as they come through, you know, because we can't do any of that. This idea of not touching the earth and that the earth is something sacred, it is a worship. Uh, it's a pagan worship. All pagan worship is, is a form of the worship of nature. And that pagan worship is in that statement, that idiotic statement that was made. The last paragraph we'll talk about is paragraph 92. Priests are necessary, but this does not mean that permanent deacons, of whom there should be many more in the Amazon region, religious women, and laypersons cannot regularly assume important responsibilities for the growth of communities and perform those functions ever more effectively with the aid of a suitable accompaniment. Yeah, this is more of the same garbage. Well, again, you know, you could you could put a benign interpretation on that to say that, well, you know, the church has always used nuns and the church has always used, say, religious brothers. It never had the married deacons, you know, but that's what he's referring to there. But I mean, conceivably, deacons could do some work that priests do. They could baptize and do things like that. I mean, you could put a, a, a Catholic interpretation on that but i don't i don't think that's the idea here i think the idea is that there are no priests and that there's going to be a uh, or very few priests and there are is going to be a quote unquote catholicism developed there that is based on on essentially lay uh, a lay ministry which they're getting into more and more with the novostrato well, I was looking at Francis's message for Lent for 2020, and I thought it was quite in contrast to the three-part conference you gave, Your Excellency, on the season of Lent. So <laughs> if, if our listeners would like a corrective to Francis's message for Lent, you can go to the MHT Seminary podcast uh, feed, and you can find, you'll have to scroll down, I think, at this point, probably about 20 or 30 from when, you, when this episode is recorded down to find it. But you'll see there's a three-part series about three hours altogether that His Excellency gave. Even though we are in the closing days of Lent, it's still worthwhile to revisit some of the important ideas and themes that we should be thinking about as we head into Holy Week. But Francis isn't interested in what His Excellency talked about in that conference. Instead, in his message for Lent, he said, putting the Paschal mystery at the center of our lives means feeling compassion towards the wounds of the crucified Christ present in the many innocent victims of wars, in attacks on life, from that of the unborn to that of the elderly, and various forms of violence. They are likewise present in environmental disasters, the unequal distribution of the earth's goods, human trafficking in all its forms, and the unbridled thirst for profit, which is a form of idolatry. Yeah, you know, this is a combination of 
dogmaless humanitarianism as the substitute for the Catholic religion and communism. You know, the idea that a prophet is evil, uh, even though the Vatican works off of donations made by people who are making profits and some of them real big profits. Uh, the prophet is, e- is evil and unequal distribution of the goods of the earth is evil. That's a communist idea because it's going to be an unequal distribution because some people work harder than others. Some people are smarter than others. Some people live in civilized lands, which makes it possible for them to make more profit and do better in- economically than those who are, who might have great uh, intelligence and great diligence, but who are impeded by the backwardness of their governments or the corruption of their governments or just the general backwardness of the country that is undeveloped and they can't do what they might be able to do in another a more developed country. That, that's, you know, so, you know, I'm thinking of a lot of third world countries where the governments are so corrupt that you couldn't possibly run a business there. And that's what keeps the people in poverty while you get these, you know, big potentates living in palaces, uh, you know, and, and surrounded by all sorts of servants and all of that. You notice, by the way, that Maduro has no problem getting food. And you notice how fat he is, <laughs> whereas his population, you know, is starving. And the people around him, those soldiers that surround him, they look good and fat, too. Do you notice that? You know, nobody is, is gaunt or anything like that. They're nice and fat. You remember how fat Khrushchev was, too? You remember, you probably don't remember him. He was a big fat guy. So, so was Brezhnev big and fat. And Gorbachev was not exactly, you know, uh, Cinderella either. You know, these people eat well. They're doing well. They, they sit on the top of the communist and socialist, uh, mountain. And in the meantime, you know, the, the average person, is doing very poorly. And, and so, you know, the, the communism brings that. It, 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 uh, whereas a government and a society which is based on principles of justice and not communism and socialism gives an atmosphere whereby people who have talent are able to build a business to do well and to make profit and to, to uh, actually benefit others through charity. See, charity is to give from your excess to to people uh, who are in need, and that that's a whole other thing from socialism. So, uh, and there could be an obligation of charity for those who have a great deal to to give to people who, who don't. But you know, Saint Paul says, if you don't work, you don't eat. And you know, to, to condemn uh, in principle the unequal distribution of goods in the world is really contrary to Saint Paul. I mean, <laughs> he was very clear: if you don't work, you don't eat. That's an unequal distribution of goods because there's no food for you because you didn't work. That's why he had to go make tents. Right. Uh, St. Paul recognized that as well. Right. In the March Angelus, uh, Bergoglio implies that the love that God gives us doesn't ask for anything in return. The quote is, it should be emphasized that in the midst of the group of the Twelve, Jesus chooses to take Peter, James, and John with him to the mount. He reserves for them the privilege of witnessing the transfiguration. Yet Peter, in the hour of trial, will deny him, and the two brothers, James and John, will ask to have the first places in his kingdom. However, Jesus does not choose according to our criteria, 
but according to his plan of love. It is a free, unconditional choice, a free initiative, a divine friendship that asks for nothing in return. And as he called those three disciples today also, he calls some to be close to him in order to bear witness. Being witnesses is a gift that we have not deserved. We feel inadequate, but we cannot hold back with our inability being our excuse. Is that true, Your Excellency, that divine friendship asks for nothing in return? No, that's ridiculous. It's contrary to the Holy Gospel uh, that uh, that we have to, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. So it's just contrary to the gospel. You go to hell, he denies hell, you know, but you go to hell if you don't obey the commandments. That's, you know, so you have to give in return. That's really Protestantism, you know, just uh, believe in the Lord and, and everything will be okay. And where you reduce Christianity to a type of uh, uh, devotion, you know, you're emotional and pious about the Lord and that, you know, we just love him in return uh, or, you know, just uh, we have this this friendship and that it is not necessary to observe the, the rules that God has put on us. It's just uh, contrary to the gospel. It's the only thing to say about it. I mean, it's just not true. It's it's false. It's, it's potentially heretical. I mean, the thing about these modernists is that they are saying things that are so outrageous and outlandish that nobody in the past had the the gall to say them. And so they are saying things that are really heretical, but there's no condemnation of them in the past, unfortunately, because you know, nobody, like women priests, that, that would just, that was considered so ridiculous by everyone in, in the past that there was, there's no condemnation of it. But it, it is certainly heretical. I mean, you know, it's, it's so it's contrary to, to every tradition, scripture, everything. So, you know, there's a lot of that going around to say that there's nothing that we have to give in return to God uh, is it's just simply contrary to the Holy Gospels. And contrary to St. Paul, who says he gives a list and in a number of epistles, all of the reasons why you go to hell. He calls it you will not enter into the kingdom of God. That means you go to hell uh, if you're a fornicator, if you're an adulterer, if you're this, this and this and this. It, you know, there's, there's a number of texts like that. You know, so how could you say that there's nothing to give in return? In January, uh, it came out that Francis supports public benefits for, for sodomites by creating this distinction. The commentary reads, he made important distinctions between the sexual orientation and the question of marriage. For example, saying it was important to ensure gay couples have access to public benefits while insisting that they cannot marry. Now, all this again is, I mean, oh gosh. This implies that it is all right for sodomites to live together and presumably to have perverted sexual acts one with the other, but that they can't marry. When you say gay couples, that puts a, a stamp of approval upon the fact that they are living together. And, I mean... Everybody knows that if they're living together, you can presume that they are engaging in perverse sexual activity. You know, otherwise they wouldn't be living together. I mean, I, I think that's a reasonable presumption to say a, a gay couple, you know, that, you know, so the, I mean, in this, this absurd and pharisaical defense of Christian marriage, 
by saying they really can't get married. They are approving the idea of sodomites living together and performing uh, unnatural sex acts with each other. And that, you know, these people should be recognized and should get benefits. I mean, if this had been said in the 1950s, (laughs) the the outrage, the world outrage would would have been deafening. That the Vatican would talk about gay couples and how that they should be recognized and benefited. But as you as as you said numerous times in your sermons, the culture is the great former of minds. Yes. Culture is downstream from religion. Politics is downstream from culture, and we live in a very polluted time. And so these things are normal to be said now. Yes. Well, yes. Certainly, they deleve, de- deserve public benefits. And again, this false distinction, well, they can't get married, but they should have access to benefits. There's no logic there. No, there is no bond there, obviously. I mean, then, you know, well, then should people who are, as we used to say, I think that's politically incorrect, shacked up together? Uh, should they, you know, should the shack ups get benefits? I mean, it's the same thing. There's no bond except friendship, you know, and, uh, you know, the, the, uh, uh, it's just a complete. I mean, again, back to the savagery. This, this, these are. This is typical of savages, the moral point of view. I mean, we're living in comfortable homes, we drive beautiful cars, but we're savages from the point of view of morality and culture. Savages, and uh, so it gets back to that point. I know that's the term I've heard it used, shacked up or living in sin. But these days, you're actually that's only ever used ironically. People will put them in sort of air quotes and say, oh, so-and-so is, quote-unquote, living in sin. But I I wonder what a time period would have been like when divorce, if there was a divorced person on the street, you wouldn't socialize with them. You couldn't socialize with that kid because that kid was with a divorced mom. Mm -hmm. Uh, Or someone would use that phrase. They would say, oh, so-and-so is living in sin. And it wasn't being used ironically. Mm-hmm. And that is within the lifetime of my parents. I, mm-hmm. I'm certain that yes. my parents would have heard those sorts of phrases. And mm-hmm. just one generation later. Yes, I remember growing up, even though divorce was permitted among Protestants, even they looked down upon it. And we had one divorced couple on this block. And it was, well, they're divorced. I mean, this is, you know, we shouldn't have anything to do with them because they're divorced. And remarried, you know, and uh, it was a bad word, divorced. Even in a Protestant country, now it's, well, you know, and really that is, you know, we tend to um, look at, you know, the sodomy and, and living together as, you know, terrible things. Uh, the real problem is divorce, and that comes from Protestantism. And the recognition of divorce and remarriage is the, the, main social and cultural disease of countries because the destruction of the married state and its wholesale destruction, it's it's practically universal destruction, has a far worse effect than the the very small percentage of people who are living in sodomitical situations or probably, well, I'm going to back up on that. I mean, so much living together now. But the living together is there because of the divorce and the destruction of the institution of marriage through divorce. 
And but you know, divorce is considered something now. I mean, even President Trump is divorced twice, and he's on number three, I think. Right. So. You know that's considered uh, legitimate, and people don't even blink an eye. But <laughs> yeah, with the, with, the, with the president, I always think of that the Samaritan woman at the well. You know, our Lord would say, "Well, have you said that? You know, you have no husband. <laughs> <laughs> the one you're with now is not your husband, <laughs> right?" The episodes we've been discussing up to this point were prior to the worldwide quarantine, and even uh, in Europe, the first country to be locked down was Italy. So unfortunately, this means Francis has a lot of time to give interviews, Your Excellency. And that means more for us to comment on. The first one was to La Repubblica in March. We are all children of God, and he watches over us. Even those who have not yet met God, who do not have the gift of faith, can find their way to the good things that they believe in. They can find strength in their love for their children, their family, their brothers and sisters. Someone might say, I cannot pray because I do not believe. But at the same time, we can believe in the love of the people we have around us, and there we can find hope. Yeah, this is pure naturalism. Don't forget, this is the same person that said that atheists can go to heaven for the same reasons. He's the same person that said to the young boy who was crying over his father, which I think was a big staged phony thing, comes up to it and your father he went to heaven because he was a bravo uomo you know uomo brava nice guy you know great guy even though he was an atheist the father was an atheist this is the same man he i think i you know it's my high suspicion that bergoglio himself is an atheist and we'll get to that a little later too but the i think he is an atheist and that he is a naturalist and that if you are naturally good, if you're, you know, basically decent, if you're a good socialist and a good leftist, especially, you will uh, achieve uh, heaven, whatever heaven is for him. You know, I, I don't know, but you'll you'll somehow come out right in the end. Let's put it that way. And uh, it's contrary to all the teaching of the church. It, it's it's heretical. It's naturalistic. I just think with all the richness of opportunity that he could talk about, not only because it's Lent, not only because there's a virus you can talk about, don't worry about those who can kill the body, those who can kill the soul, doesn't really mention our Lord here. Not only is it Lent, but they're asking, what should we do? There's a worldwide virus. Well, believe in your family. Right. Believe in the love of those around you. Right, right. Yes, human love being something very, very permanent and stable. (laughs) Never as, changes. As divorce, you know, attests to, and living together and everything else attests to, yeah. In the interview he gave to La Stampa in March as well, he said that the current crisis will remind us that once and for all, humanity is a single community. Universal kinship is important and critical. We should think about it like a post-war phenomenon. It will no longer be them. It will be us. Because we can only come out of this situation together. We will need to look more closely at our roots, our grandparents, the elderly, to build true kinship amongst us. Yes, uh, I, I said this in my recent article. I don't know, but I don't think that the dark world powers uh, that be, or the world powers of darkness that be, arrange this. They may have this coronavirus. They may have, but as I said, you know, the filthy habits of China are sufficient there too. In other words, they're, they're, uh, you know, because they were, they were responsible for the Black Death in the Middle Ages and they're also for most of the other, the SARS, the bird flu and the swine flu 
I think one they were not responsible for, but you know all of the other things that threatened us in the in recent decades came out of China. But certainly the leftists are delighting in this, and the one-worlders are delighting in this because it is a world crisis. I think that they are using it for a dress rehearsal for other world crises that will have the same effect. People, when they go into a panic, are willing to accept great social and political changes. And we're seeing this, you know, we're seeing that the fear of this, of this uh, disease is, uh, you know, the fear of death, which is obviously a very strong fear in human beings, is driving people into a, a sheepish, herd-like mentality with regard they'll take anything that comes down from the government as far as you know hurting us i guess keeping us out of the herd or (laughs) keeping us away from each other not even questioning it just going along because of fear and also you know we're all in this together this is a worldwide thing it's it's a perfect thing for the forces of world government and um i would call them the, the forces of darkness which will ultimately lead to the Antichrist. The the Antichrist will need something like this in order to come about. Well, they're, they're, they're opposed to us. That the forces of organized naturalism, Father Jakarta says we are the disorganized forces of supernaturalism. <laughs> <laughs> Even though Father Jakarta isn't with us, I'll, I'll keep his, his jokes with us in spirit. Yes. The Antipope goes on to say that the idea of what's happening is a revenge from the planet. The interviewer says, the planet hasn't been very clean for a long time. Is it possible that this is nature's hour of reckoning with us? The answer from Bergoglio, there's a saying that you surely know. God always forgives. We forgive sometimes, but nature never forgives. Fires, earthquakes, that is, nature is having a fit so that we will take care of nature. So there's an alternative explanation to yours, Your Excellency, of there being the organized forces of naturalism. This is nature having a fit. <laughs> Uh, no, let me, let me explain a few things that part of the punishment of man after his original sin was the disorder of the earth. There is the earthquakes, the disorder of weather, the severe weather, various other things that make life very, very miserable for us and, and kill us, uh, Tornadoes, uh, hurricanes, uh, all the you know uh, fires, but I mean to say nature is having a fit. That just again, it's it's like it's just ridiculous because nature is incapable of having a fit. Many of these things we have brought on ourselves. For example, diseases. Most of the time, we bring on ourselves. I mean, this can be traced to all of the filthy habits of the Chinese in Wuhan with their wet markets. Most probably. And the fact that China has such a record for producing diseases puts high suspicion on what goes on in China. <laughs> you know, I prefer the term Wuhanic plague. <laughs> yeah. We've seen this meme where this reporter saying to President Trump, why are you insisting on calling it the Chinese virus? And then there's a close up on Trump's lips and it says, because it came from China. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, they have a terrible track record. The fact that, and I only came across it by accident the other day in church history, we were doing the 14th century, and this author who was writing in the 1860s 
says that the Black Plague came from the western provinces of China and came over the Silk Road, you know, the, the all of the trade with the what is now the Middle East, and was picked up by the Genoese boats and came into Europe that way. So it's following a very traditional path from China to Italy. <laughs> right, yes. This is nothing new. So human beings bring these things on themselves. We are careless. I mean, there's many other things that we bring on ourselves that are the causes of death, many other disorders, uh, health disorders, eating too much, for example. I pointed out in my article, high speeds on freeways that kill in this country that killed 40,000 people last year on our highways, airplanes and, and other other forms of, of high speed that we consider useful. Uh, smoking, uh, over 100,000 people died in this country last year of lung cancer. Now, you know, if we were to go into a panic about that, uh, we should outlaw cigarettes. That would reduce that immensely. You see, but we don't have no panic about a hundred thousand people dying of lung cancer last year. So what I'm saying is that most of our ills come from the sins of human beings in one way or the other. Their, their, their lack of hygiene, their immorality, various other sins, gluttony, impurity, uh, you know, uh, syphilis supposedly came from bestiality. And, you know, AIDS, you know, that, that, where that comes from. Most uh, of, of the health problems of the human race come from its, its stupidity. And actually, the freedom from ignorance of the first parents was precisely that. One of the effects of that was how to care for yourself properly. In other words, that, that they had a knowledge, a uh, scientific knowledge about their own bodies and, and et cetera, what was good and what was bad for them. And whereas, you know, you know, we have obesity now, if we were really in a panic about obesity, we would outlaw Coca-Cola, you know, and all of the soft drinks, get rid of all of those things. We're very selective about our panics. And most of the, the problems of the human race come from their own fault. So to say this is the, you know, nature having a fit, the forest fires in, in California, you know, where they came from, from PG&E. And also from the fact that the PG&E was was restricted from cutting down the trees so that the, you know, the wires, you know, fell on the trees and the trees caught fire. (laughs) Well, they were busy in the shade of an ancient eucalyptus so that they could weep with the trees together. Yeah, they can weep as they burn up. And also the overdevelopment of California. That's where these things are coming from. And uh, even if you wanted to believe in climate change, which I don't, but I mean, uh, well, I think there's a certain amount of climate change. But, you know, saying that uh, it's it's all of the carbon dioxide, these are things that we have chosen to do. (laughs) Whereas, as I always say, when the politicians go back to the horses and the ox carts, I will listen to them about climate change. For as long as they're jetting around in private jets and, and doing all of these things that are very offensive to what they say is the cause of the climate change, I don't take them seriously because they don't take it seriously. But these are things we have chosen to do. I mean, one of the theories about northern Italy being hit so hard is the air pollution in Milan. 
that has a terrible air pollution, Milan. Uh, that that whole Po Valley is is windless and, and there's fogs and everything. But we have chosen to do that. And again, even perhaps you know the climate change is is the working of man. It's not nature having a fit. That is so stupid, idiotic, and lunatical. I mean, I'm trying to think of adjectives that go beyond stupid, that a booby might be good. Booby is another adjective. You've once used the term excrementitious around yes, me. Yes, <laughs> I think that that's descriptive. Well, as I say, excrementitious cranium syndrome. All right? <laughs> <laughs> you can figure that one out. <laughs> Bovine excrement and, and whatnot. This is what, you know, we're on that level. I mean, there's really, how do you describe these, these asinine things? Mm. Uh, Certainly something asinine would be taking an ancient crucifix and putting it out in the rain for a couple hours, Your Excellency. The famous plague crucifix, which I think Father McKenna and Father Charner and I got to see in Rome in January. If I remember correctly, I think it's behind glass. It's not really nearby for you to see. He took this out. There was a canopy for him, no canopy for the crucifix. And apparently, it's uh, the the woods is under major stress from, as you can imagine, from being left out in the rain for a couple hours. Yes, yes, of course. So, what church was that in? San Marcello al Corso. Oh, okay, yeah, I but know that. this miraculous plague crucifix here it survived and helped Ro- the Romans survive from the plague, but it can't survive Francis. <laughs> right, right. Yeah, it's a horrible touch. Yes. This is uh, as as part of the the ongoing reaction to him. We have another Novus Ordo bishop who has gone non unicum, which which I find fascinating. You see, there are are so called traditionalist priests that do not accept your argument about the importance of unicum, but here we have a Novus Ordo person who won't use Francis's name in the canon, and this was a former archbishop in Kazakhstan named Jan Lenga. And he refuses to use the name of Francis. He calls Francis a usurper and a heretic. And he says, Bergoglio has not confirmed himself in the faith and is not passing that faith to others. He is leading the world astray. He proclaims untruths and sins, not the tradition which has endured for 2,000 years. He proclaims the truth of this world, which is precisely the truth of the devil. Mm Mm-hmm. I could not have said those things better myself. <laughs> I would have said that those might have been said by you, Your Excellency, <laughs> yes. if I didn't know that he had said that. Yes. Now, what's interesting is he then chooses to insert Benedict XVI's name in the canon. He's part of this growing school of what has been called resignationism. And there was an interesting article put out by Louis Varecchio on this. And I'll just read an excerpt. In the process of defending their convictions, so these are referring to the resignationists, they have been forced to insist that their ability and willingness to identify the antipope, in spite of the majority opinion to the contrary, in no way sets them against traditional Catholic teaching, as some would insist. These things being so, they now find themselves standing on common ground, reluctantly or not, with Sedevacantists. Secondly, and drawing closer to the point, Sedevacantism is already an effective reality for the Benedict Remains Pope crowd, given what they consider to be the true Pope's exile, a condition to which he assented even if under threat, whereby he isn't functioning as Roman pontiff in any real sense. Inevitably, however, Sedevacantism will become a concrete reality for such persons immediately upon Benedict's death. It's unavoidable. 
once Benedict dies, the church, in their view, will be without a true pope, even as the majority of self-identified Catholics still consider the anti-pope, Bergoglio, to be the true pope. Yeah, that's well said. I mean, it's insightful. Yes, I'd agree with what he said. Because I think it's interesting, people are finding this to be a safe harbor for them. They can't say that there's no pope, but we can say this man, he's definitely not the pope. But yes, our old German shepherd, who's locked in a closet somewhere in the Vatican, he's the real one. But they'll be forced to face the reality. Yes, and not before long, too. I mean, he's uh, quite old. I think he's in his 90s now, right? Resting he might get the coronavirus. Who yeah, knows? Yeah, you never know. But, uh, no, well, there's a couple of things. One is, yes, they are really getting on the Sede bus by saying that because uh, most likely Ratzinger will disappear before Bergoglio. And then they have the problem of a conclave inhabited by people appointed by Bergoglio. Unless they are belong to the thesis idea and that these people have still have the right to vote. <laughs> no, no, Novus Ordo thesis holders, Your right. Excellency. It depends on where they go with that. You know, how do you have a valid conclave if you're saying that non-Ratzinger appointed cardinals or JP2 appointed cardinals and Bergoglio has appointed a lot of cardinals are in that conclave? How do you have a valid one? And you have to get a two-thirds vote. But I, I would say, you know, I mean, there's uh, the other problem is that they believe in the Ratzinger mythology. It is a myth that Ratzinger is in some way a pillar of orthodoxy. That what he's accusing Bergoglio of is not also true of Ratzinger. That's a myth. It is a myth engendered by, as all myths are, by, you know, some need of fixing the problem in the church. You know, it, it, like, you know, myths in the ancient world were all, you know, excuses for the gods. But there is a need to, to say, well, there's somebody around that's, that's really good. And, uh, that, uh, you know, the church is still alive because Ratzinger is there. It, but that's just a myth. I mean, they should study, somebody perhaps should redo all of the things that Ratzinger has said since the time he was a, a young theologian. The outrageous things that he said that make Bergoglio look like an altar boy. And the fact that he permitted condoms. I just said this to someone the other day, and he, and he said, oh, did he really do that? I said, yes, it was on the news. And he said, well, you can't believe everything you read in the news, you know. So I said, well, I give up. We're in an epistemological problem here that, you know, if we can't believe what was commonly said and which he did not deny, because first he said that male prostitutes in Africa can use condoms. And then they, he was pressed to say, well, what about the female prostitutes? Oh, they can use condoms, too. And that was 2013. I remember it distinctly. And. So that is actually worse than what Bergoglio said in Amoris Laetitia, because in Amoris Laetitia, he condones fornication and adultery. But at least fornication and adultery are in accordance sexually with the natural law. In other words, there's no perversion involved, whereas birth control is in the same category as sodomy and masturbation. They are perversions of the sexual process or the sexual organs. They are perversions. They are against the natural law in that sense. And uh, so actually what he approved of was unnatural sex. That's what Ratzinger approved of. 
And that's actually worse than what Bergoglio approved of. You know, in that sense, it is worse. And that breaks the, the whole fabric of Catholic morality because Catholic morality is that when something is intrinsically evil, you cannot, for any reason whatsoever, perform that act. Even if you have to accept death, in order to avoid that act, you must accept death. That's Catholic morality. If you say, well, in order to preserve someone from AIDS, you can use a condom. And that was his idea that, well, there's a morality involved in this, therefore it's okay, which is totally contrary to Catholic morality, because some sort of extrinsic good does not justify something that is intrinsically evil. That is first course in moral theology. It's everybody knows that. He destroyed that principle, saying that the extrinsic good of preserving somebody from AIDS actually justifies the intrinsic evil. That is so bad, yet he is considered a god of Catholic orthodoxy. And they need to see him as a god, and he fed that need by wearing those pretty miters and the crozier's and the vestments. And those red Prada shoes. Yes, and the red shoes and the velvet half cape and that velvet hat. That's what did the trick. He ran around in a big throne. And if you notice the pictures of the throne of Bergoglio versus that of, it looks like Pius XII's throne. Those idiotic and theatrical things, that word is coming up more and more. I'd have to get some more words. I have to look up in the dictionary the next time for more words. But that, that theatrical thing that is really no different from, say, what the Metropolitan Opera would use, that theatrical act convinced all of these people that he was you know, really good, completely blind to the evil that he did at the council, before the council, and after the council in destroying the Catholic faith. He is worse than Bergoglio. Ratzinger is worse than Bergoglio. Well, because he has more brains than Bergoglio, I would say. He has more brains, and he has done more damage to the Catholic faith he virtually ran Vatican II from the point of view of ideas with the horrible Hans Kung and the horrible, uh, what's his name, Runner. They were a triumvirate that produced all of the evil of Vatican II. He is far, far worse than Bergoglio. I'll take ten Bergoglios over a Ratzinger. And so this bishop is missing the whole point. I mean, as far as, as much as I agree with him, he's missing the point. You make an excellent point, Yorksley, but I think that will still fall to the background against the reality of his death, that they haven't really considered what you've talked about. And they may, yes. they'll, they'll take issue with it because for them, this is a halfway house instead of a contism. Say, okay, well, definitely I can't accept that Francis is the Pope. That's crazy. That's a crazy idea. But uh, maybe this guy who wore these shoes and put on these miters, he was the guy. But when he goes, then they'll have no place to go. Yes, it sets up for schism, too. In other words, two popes. You could see that. Do you think that's realistic, Your Excellency? You think some people would get together and have their own conclave, like an Avignon conclave? I think it's conceivable. In other words, where you get these people who are just waiting for Bergoglio to croak. People like Burke and others. I mean, you know that they can't stand him. 
and hoping that that the man will go to his eternal destiny, whatever that should be. If those cardinals come together and elect another Bergoglio or worse, which they probably will, I could see a breakaway conclave. I could see it. I would not be surprised because I think that the toleration point of a lot of these conservatives is getting very, very thin. Well, in relation to the toleration of Bergoglio for for Ratzinger, there was the demotion of uh, Georg Ganschwein in the pontifical household. There had been some back and forth as to what had happened. Was it a demotion? But he is no longer there, partially for his role that he played in the Cardinal Sarah book intervention. That Cardinal Sarah had written a book about priestly celibacy, had been able to put Ratzinger's name there. And then Ratzinger backs off and says, oh, I, I never knew the man. And then in reaction, Cardinal Sarah publishes all of these emails in which Ratzinger has said, oh, yes, of course, we're going to do this project together. And of course, you can use my name. Mm-hmm. Yes, yes. Well, first of all, let's do a little pronunciation correction. His name is Ganswein, which means in German, goose wine. Goose wine. You said Ganschwein, <laughs> which means goose pig, which, you know, in all deference to the man, I mean, I don't agree with him in theology, but I think we should keep his name in good condition. <laughs> Ganschwein. Ganswein. Ganswein. Yes. Ganswein. I'm sure that there's some of my ancestors who are thanking you for that correction, right? yeah, yeah. Uh, Your Excellency. So we have a proxy hit on Benedict that Francis can't express his displeasure with Benedict directly, but he can demote his spokesman for yes. this. And so we can see a, a bit of a proxy war here. Yes, and that's, uh, you know, Gonsfein was, was a right-hand man of, of Ratzinger for years. I mean, even as a young man, he was at Ratzinger's side, you know, so... So he's he's been serving as his private secretary, and up to this point was the prefect for Francis's household. Yes, but has now seemed to have disappeared into the ether. Yes, yes. So it's uh, not not surprising, but I, I could you know I could see a, a, an anti conclave after this. But uh, again, the more fundamental problem is that none of these people understand that Vatican II is the problem. They're seeing Bergoglio as a rogue from the Vatican II orthodoxy. This is the problem. Until Vatican II is recognized as the source of all of the church's ills since the 1960s, we have nothing. And all of those people, Schneider and all, are light years away from that. I had noted at the beginning of the program, Your Excellency, that the coronavirus is going to invade into any sort of discussion we have, even if it's Francis. And I think the last thing I want to speak about today is what would be the conduct of the church normally in some kind of plague circumstances? Do we close all the churches? Do we outlaw confession? Do we make it a crime to go see the Blessed Sacrament? Is that normally what's done when the church is confronted with a disease? Because the church has been confronted with a lot of diseases over many centuries. Well, the the most efficacious thing you can do for preserving yourself from bodily and spiritual harm is to pray to God, because the providence of God is what governs the entire universe, and everything that happens to us or does not happen to us is envisioned by, willed by the providence of God. That's something that has to be understood. 
and that we quote unquote move the will of God. I'm using that in a very, very uh, metaphorical because we don't move God, God doesn't move. But when we pray, we are fulfilling the conditions that God has set up in order that He grant our prayers. See, we're not you're not changing His mind. But he has set up certain certain conditions, and he wants us to pray to him. So certain things he will grant, sometimes without our prayers, and many, many benefits that he gives us without our prayers, but certain things he wants us to pray for. And so the best thing we can do is to pray to God. So, you know, I, I think that the closure of the churches is something that should not have been done. That should be, of course, and there should be public processions for the lifting of the plague. I mean, that's what the church always did. And many times the plague was lifted as a result of these processions. No social distancing there. No, Your no, there's plenty of social distancing. Now, you know, the supernatural order does not deny the natural order. I think that uh, certain reasonable precautions could be taken. I think that the panic is way overboard. But the certain reasonable precautions could be taken. And, uh, but you know, you always have to balance the general good against the individual good. Obviously, it's bad that people are dying of this disease. It's obviously bad. But as I used in other cases, you know, it's obviously bad that 40,000 people perish on our highways and children and innocent people perish in horrible accidents. But we tolerate that figure. In order to have the benefit of moving quickly goods and, you know, saving time by driving 70 miles an hour, we say that's, that's a tolerable side effect to 40,000 people who die. The fact that we get tax money from cigarettes makes us look as, you know, with a benign eye upon the 117,000 people dying of lung cancer every year. You know, that, that there's always a balance and I'm saying that somewhat sarcastically because I mean, the idea of keeping cigarettes going and tolerating a hundred and some thousand deaths a year from lung cancer for me is totally disproportionate. You know, <laughs> that's, you know, I got rid of them, you know, think of you know, children growing up in homes where you have secondary smoke. They're smoking too, even though they don't have a cigarette in their mouth. The same thing with abortions. Abortions. Air pollution, it's, again, something that we consider to be a necessary side effect. That's, uh, you know, it, it does affect our lungs. It may affect climate. We don't know. Maybe, maybe it does. I'm not, you know, I don't think, uh, I'm not a, but I mean, I wouldn't exclude that idea, you know, that uh, it's bad for the climate. Putting all that junk in the air, you know, it's, you know. But I mean, for years, Europe has used diesel and dirty cars. We had the clean cars long before Europe did. I'm happy to say that I'm a denier, Your Excellency, when it comes to man-made climate change. But well, no, I'm I'm just you know devil's advocate on that, or you know, it just you have to balance the general good against the individual good. And I would say, you know, shutting down the whole economy of the whole world is not proportionate to the loss of some people, in most cases, elderly who will die of something else anyway. I don't think there's any proportion there in comparison to other things that we tolerate. I think that the, the phrase you used for your blog article, and that was also in the newsletter, is the, a cure that's worse than the disease. Yes, yes. This isn't a cure I'm interested in, that's for sure. Now, you know, I, I pray to God that I don't get the thing. <laughs> I hope I don't die from it. 
But even if I were, I would say still maintain that, that there has to be a proportion between some evil on one side and the common good on the other, and the common good is more important than the individual good. Well, as you noted in the conference you gave on, on Lent, you're supposed to be dead already. Yes, I should be dead already, actually, except for modern medicine. You might share that anecdote with our listeners. They may not have listened to the conference. Yes, yes. In October of 2017, it was discovered that I had a 98% blockage in what they call the widowmaker, which is the main artery coming out of the heart. And my brother, who is a physician, he's a retired anesthesiologist in New York, told me, oh, you would have been dead by Christmas. It being a virtue in my family to be blunt. <laughs> <That's what laughs> it's clear that he's me. a Sanborn, yes. Your Excellency. <laughs> That's what he said, right? Oh, you would have been dead by Christmas. Because I was getting these pains as I was walking around saying my rosary. Yet, when I was, I had gone to the emergency room for something else in August of 2017 because I had an ear problem and it was giving me vertigo. And as a result of that vertigo, I started having chest pains. And I thought, mm, I, you know, I might be having a heart attack here. So sure enough, I went into the emergency room. This was in August. And they said, oh, there's nothing wrong with your heart. And I, I'm lying there on the gurney thinking, why do I have this pain? If there's nothing wrong with my heart, I never had this pain before. Nothing wrong with your heart. You're fine. And told me to take some sort of uh, thing for the vertigo and you'll be okay. And that's why I didn't do anything. I thought I had some other problem. I thought I'm, my heart's fine, you know. So finally, I I went into the. I, I thought I got to get myself checked out because this is getting worse and worse. So they discovered that I had that blockage. So by rights, you know, if I had been living, say, in the 1950s or the 1940s, I would have dropped dead at age 67. So by rights, I should be dead, you know, in a sense. Apart from modern medicine, I, I would be dead. Right. So. You know, that's part of life is to die. Disease, especially as you get elderly. And as I said in my recent blog, you know, when you get to 70, there, there's a bullet with your name on it. <laughs> you know, you probably are not going to get out of the decade. Maybe, you you know, if you're if you're good, you're going to, but, you know, probably not get out I of like, the decade. I like that phrase, actually. It focuses the mind. It focuses <laughs> yes. the mind. There's a, there's a bullet with my name on it. But again, this is the Christian life. The Christian life, we're not looking for... A paradise in this world we're looking to to what comes after yes. and that's part of this time i reflected with with some others the other day that it's the first time i've ever had to go to mass in secret in mm-hmm. my life yes and this yes. last sunday father left the lights off in the oratory so that it couldn't attract attention and then we would come in one by one so it didn't look like a crowd was going in there and he capped it at 20, so we're text messaging, so he knows how many people are coming. He says, we can't have any more than this. And even then, there's ambiguity. Some police are turning back versus, oh, no, no, you're not allowed to go to any religious gathering. So there's confusion about right. laws. But I thought to myself, what a great privilege it is even to be able to attend Mass when it's somewhat illegal. Yes. That during the yes. times of the persecutions, you could get killed yes. for doing this. You know, yes. Why would I worry about getting fined? So yes. if I get fined, a big deal. The English Catholics would have yes. died to go to Mass. Yes. I think we should do the same. Yes. We're looking forward to a Pelosi-free world. That's <laughs> <laughs> so aspiring to the, to the kingdom of God, which will be Pelosi-free. <laughs> have the authorities uh, clamped down on you yet, Your Excellency? We just had a, a lockdown yesterday from uh, Governor DeSantis. However, he said religious services are essential. 
So he exempted. So, yeah, he's pretty good. I mean, you know, but he did not specify whether we needed to do the social distancing in those. Now, there was just a pastor, a Protestant pastor, uh, arrested in Hillsborough County, which is Tampa, because last week, uh, it was Sunday before, I think it was just past Sunday, I think so, that he had a big, you know, revival meeting, or whatever they have, a lot of people, number, a few hundred people. He was arrested. Now, Tampa put down the lockdown before the governor did. It was the Till Hillsborough County. And so he was arrested. I don't know what has become of him, but he was arrested. So the question is, do we have to do the social distancing? So I'm trying to find out. I saw the decree, the actual decree of the governor. There is no specific reference to social distancing with regard to religious. He didn't even mention social distancing at all. I mean, so, you know, it's vague. It's, you know, what, what are you? So we're trying to find out if that's what they require. But it has hit us here in Florida. One of the problems was that the New Yorkers were getting out of New York and coming to Florida. Mm. Yeah. And uh, so they were infecting South Florida, particularly. And because people move around Florida, obviously, it was, you know, the idea was. And then a lot of the leftists were pressing him to, to shut down Florida. He was holding out for a long time. But the leftists, the leftists are using this for their usual vomitious politics yeah so you know it, it makes you just as i said we're 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 aspiring to one day being pelosi free <laughs> i would ask you what's going on in the seminary but i have to imagine that the the move of the seminary is now on hold it's on hold as a, as a matter of fact yesterday i contacted the realtor and i said uh you know, we got to, uh, uh, I said, I even want out of the contract. We're still in a period of where we can get out of the contract. And the reason is that the way I was going to, is we have to do certain remodeling in that building in order to make it useful. And problem is I was counting on, when I made the offer about a month ago, I was counting on an inheritance that we are about to get, which the lawyer told me would be about $400,000. Right, which I thought, well, that ought to take care of those that remodeling, and it should be issued. You know, it's all through the courts, so you should get it in sixty days. That would have been the end of April, because I made it the offer at the beginning of March. Well, come to find out that all of that money is in stocks, and so the other day he said, "Well, I spoke to Merrill Lynch, and your share would be worth about two hundred twenty-five thousand." And the other problem is that it's a three-way split between two other religious entities. And they will say, well, we want to wait out the stock market to go up. And so really, I'm getting zero from it right now, effectively. So I see. So I said to the realtor, I could buy that building, but I can't use it. And I have to pull out of it. So, yeah, it's it's a, another victim. Uh, that move is another victim of the coronavirus, actually. And the collapse of the economy. Mm. And, of course, not having public mass for four weeks is going to make our income plummet here. So we, you know, we're looking at a reduced income, as everybody is right now. Reduced income. And, uh, you know, churches don't get any bailouts from the government. Right. Everybody else does. But we don't. Uh, We get shut down and good luck. You know, and it's our livelihood. So, yeah, we're on hold with that. We're on hold. At best, we're on hold. Well, Father Chikata is not here to tell us about what's going on at St. Gertrude, but perhaps you could tell us a little bit about what's going on with Father Chikata, Your Excellency. 
Really, I don't know that much. Bishop Dola never answers his phone. Okay, that's rule number one. <laughs> never answers a text. The texts don't go through. You know. So the <laughs> I don't. I don't do think is, Bishop Dolan's a texter, Your Your Excellency. To be fair, well, he might be a, a te- an outgoing texter, but he's not. He's not. You know, you incoming know, texter. Yeah, he's okay. not incoming. You know, it doesn't work. But somehow it's dead. And so it's hard to get in touch with him. So then I asked Father McGuire, you know, how he's doing. And well, you know, it's uh, that he had another minor stroke, but enough to slur his speech. So he had to go to the hospital. He didn't go in an emergency situation. They just drove him to the hospital and, and that he's having tests. I got an email from Bishop Dolan that was sort of a general that his speech is improving and that he's generally improving and his spirits are up. And of course he's joking with all of the staff there as usual, making everybody happy that way. And, but you know, he's, he's a little impaired. Mm. You know? And last time I talked to him, he didn't sound very good on the phone. I didn't think, you know, I mean, I don't mean to alarm people or it's just, I'm, I'm telling you that what I know, you know, it's a great opportunity for us to to keep him in our prayers and and pray for a recovery if that's if that's God's will and have him back with us on Francis Watch making his contribution and and bringing more humor to these antics of Jorge Bergoglio than His Excellency and I can conjure up. But also, in he the came meantime, back from the dead. Talk about somebody that should be dead. Uh, <laughs> he came back from from a bout with cancer that that is just legendary. Right. So he might come back from this too. You know, he's a fighter. Father Chikata is a fighter. I think it's in his blood. Yes, yes. Well, well, thank you for for holding up Francis Watch, Your Excellency, and we will speak more in at the end of the second quarter, at the end of June. But in the meantime, we will keep the seminary, the health of the seminarians, Father Chikata's health, and of course, for all those who are interested about what's going on in the church, that you all take this time also, if you are quarantined, to study what's going on. You can check out Novus Ordo Watch. You can check out the seminary website and learn more about what the Catholic faith teaches and why Jorge Bergoglio has nothing to do with it. Your Excellency, thank you for your time. Okay, thank you. This program was brought to you free of charge by the sponsorship of Novus Ordo Watch. See for yourself that the Church of the Second Vatican Council is not in fact the Catholic Church of the Ages. Go to NovusOrdoWatch.org. That's NovusOrdoWatch.org.